Well, today we are wrapping up our series called Things Jesus Never Said. So far throughout the series, we looked at Jesus Never Said, you know what? You get what you deserved, right? Jesus never, ever said that. You know what else Jesus didn't say? He never said, you don't have to forgive that person. Jesus never said that. Last week, we looked at Jesus never said, you know what? Bad things are just never, ever going to happen to you. Jesus never said that. We're going to look at one final thing here today, and Jesus never said this. Just do whatever it is you want to do that's going to make you happy. Say it with me. Jesus never did what? Jesus never? Jesus never said that. He never said that. Now, does that mean that Jesus doesn't want you to be happy? Of course he wants you to be happy. But your definition of happiness and his definition of happiness may be two completely different things, and that's what we're going to discover here today. So in order to find out what Jesus' definition of happiness really is, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to hang out today, John chapter 8. For those of you that are watching there online, there is a little button there in the upper right-hand corner of your screen called Talk Notes. If you want to push that, that's going to take you to all the scriptures we're going to look at today, as well as the main points I'll be making for those here in the room. If you go to your uh, tablet or you know your phone, whatever you have with you today, you go to our website, exponential.church, you're able to access the talk notes as well. Now, as you continue to, to turn there, let me just say that this story we're going to look at here in John chapter 8 is a very lengthy story of an encounter that Jesus has with someone. And if you'll take what Jesus is going to say at the end of this encounter to heart and apply it to your own life, your life is going to be transformed and changed. I guarantee it. Your life will be transformed and changed if you'll take what Jesus is going to say at the very end of heart, because this is really what it means to be happy. So let's jump right in. John chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 2. We read this. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. A crowd gathered around, and he began to teach them. Now, I've shared this little phrase with you before, but it's simply this, that those who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Does that make sense? Those who were nothing like Jesus, they were the people that liked Jesus. Those were the people that would want to come and hear him to preach and to teach. What is it he has to say? And so that's what's happening here in this situation. These people, they've gathered around in this crowd, and they're listening to him preach and teach. And then we read in verse 3, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the who? And the, the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Here's our old friends, right? The Pharisees. These are the so-called religious leaders of the day. They, are, they think that they're so much better than everybody else. They are like holy, or at least that's what they think. They think that they're holy. But Jesus said, no, you're actually not holy. You're actually hypocrites. You guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, man, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of lust and greed and pride and envy and jealousy and rage. There's all these things that are going on inside of you that are not like God. So the Pharisees, they were very, very threatened by Jesus and his rising fame, and they decided that they were going to do whatever it would take in order to trap him in his words and try to discredit it in some way. And so what they do is they drag this woman before him that's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, a couple quick notes here. Number one, why did they just bring the woman? Why is it that they only brought the woman? Because last I checked, to commit adultery, it takes two to tango. Well, I'll answer that in just a second. But the second thing I want to just ponder is, were the Pharisees a bunch of peeping Toms, or what, what's the deal? 
I mean, if you think about it, they caught her in the act of adultery. So how did they know she was committing adultery unless they were watching her committing adultery? And my point is this, when they, they drag her in, she's probably like barely clothed. This has got to be like the most humiliating and, and shameful, embarrassing thing that she's ever experienced as they drag her in here. Now, again, why did they drag her in? But why didn't they drop the guys in, or the, the guy in this case? Why, why didn't they bring him? Well, the answer is very, very simple. They didn't really care about this man. They didn't even care about this woman. This wasn't about the act of adultery. This is, again, they're trying to trap Jesus in what he is going to say. How are they going to trap him? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, they're right. In the Old Testament, the 613 commands, there's, this is the old covenant that we have. 613 commands, one of the laws of Moses there is that if you are caught in adultery, both the man and the woman are to be stoned to death. So they're absolutely right. And you know what? We, we talked about at the beginning of the series about crucifixion and how horrible crucifixion is. Think about what it means to be stoned to death. And I'm not talking like what they do in Colorado, right? I'm talking about like, you know, actual physical rocks, stones. They're picking them up and they're, they're throwing them at you until you die. This isn't like a bullet that you could instantly die. Think of what it would take to be stoned to death. It just people just are throwing stones one after another, after another, after another, just throwing them and throwing them and throwing them until you die. And they're like, Jesus, that's what she deserves. But what do you say? Now, it would appear that Jesus has a little bit of a, a dilemma here. And in the next verse then, we read what their motive was. First part of verse 6. They asked Jesus this question because they wanted to test him and bring some charges against him. So it appears that Jesus is in a no-win situation. Because if he says, yes, go ahead and stone her, because that's what the law says. The crowds, the, these people that love him and they've been flocking to his teaching, and, and they're amazed by his grace and the mercy and the love that he, he gives, the people are going to turn on him. But yet if Jesus says, no, just let her go, Basically, they're going to be able to say, see, this guy doesn't follow the law of Moses. This guy is actually condoning adultery. He's just sort of wink, wink, wink. Let's let it go. Let's just sort of sweep it under the rug here. So again, what in the world is Jesus going to be able to say to get himself out of this situation? Well, the answer is he doesn't say anything. Look at the second part of verse 6. But Jesus simply bent over and started writing on the ground with his finger. Now, this brings up the age-old question, right? What exactly was Jesus writing there on the ground? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't 100% know. However, through a little bit of context of what we're about to read happens later in the story, and then also because of what future generations of followers of Jesus said. Like a couple generations after Jesus, they were writing about this story. 
And in it, they say that Jesus was actually writing the sins of the people that were there in the crowd down there on the ground. Now, is that exactly how it happened? Again, we don't know. But let's assume that it did. I want you to picture this scene sort of in your mind. And I'm going to tell this in a little bit more modern context. So again, keep in mind, Jesus teaching the crowd. The Pharisees drag in this woman. She's been caught in the act of adultery. They're trying to trap him. Teacher, what should we do with this woman? Jesus doesn't say anything. He gets down on the ground. And as he gets down on the ground, he looks up, and the first guy he sees is Phil the Pharisee. There's good old Phil. And he writes, Phil, I've seen your internet web history. I've seen what you've been surfing on the internet. Then Jesus looks up, there's Roger the religious. And he writes, Roger, I know you're fudging your expense report at work. And one by one, Jesus looks at everybody there in the crowd, and he starts to write the sin of what they've done. Now, it would appear that at first they don't actually notice that that's what Jesus is doing here. You know, they, they think that he's just stalling or avoiding the question or just doodling in the dirt trying to, you know, buy some time here. And the reason I say that is look at verse 7. They, meaning the Pharisees, kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now, this is pretty interesting in the original Greek as you study it, where Jesus says, He who is without sin. He's not just talking here about if you've never sinned in your life. The actual Greek word there, the connotation behind it is if you've never even desired to sin. I don't know about you guys, but like even in my life today, there's times that I don't sin. I keep myself, you know, through the power of the Spirit, I don't sin, but yet my heart, my desire is, man, I'd really like to sin right now. But what Jesus is saying to these people is, Look, anybody that's here in this crowd, if you have never sinned and you've never even desired to sin, go out and pick up some stones and start throwing them at this woman. Verse 8. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Well, now he's got the attention of the Pharisees because they didn't get it the first time because they kept demanding an answer. They must not have seen what he was writing there on the ground. But one by one, they start walking forward. They start seeing that there's names there on the ground. And they're like, hey, wait, that person's here today. That person's here today. That person's here today. Oh, they did that. Oh, they did that. Oh. And then it dawns on them, oh, my, is my name there somewhere? Phil the Pharisee, yep, there's mine. He walks away. Roger the religious, he sees his sin. He walks away. One by one by one, they all go away. And that's what we read then in the next verse. Jesus has exposed all their deepest, darkest, dirtiest sins. And in verse 9, the people left one by one, beginning with the oldest. And finally, Jesus and the woman were alone. All of them are gone. It's just Jesus and this woman. And then we read this in 
verse 10, then the first part of verse 11. Jesus stood up and he asked her, where is everyone? Is there anyone left to accuse you? No, sir, the woman answered. Then Jesus told her, then I'm not going to accuse you either. Now, what's important to understand here is that Jesus doesn't say to her. He doesn't follow this up by going, you know what? Go now and do whatever it is that's going to make you happy. Jesus doesn't say, go now and follow your own heart. Jesus doesn't say any of these things. He doesn't say, just go now and live the life that you want to live just as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Jesus doesn't say, go now and you do you, Bill. He doesn't say that. None of it. Instead, Jesus says these words. Verse 11, the second part. Go now and sin no more. Now, when Jesus tells her to go and sin no more, he's not judging her. He's not condemning her. And I want you to notice that that he's given a sense of urgency. He says, go now. Go now and sin no more. What he's saying is, go now and live in the freedom that I've given you. Go now. Don't be living in shame anymore. Go now and walk in the freedom that I've given Jesus is saying the exact same thing to you. Go now and sin no more. Walk in the freedom that he gave you when he died on the cross and then rose again for your sin. Go now and sin no more. What a freeing message that is. That because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we are more than conquerors. We don't have to sin anymore. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But the power of sin isn't in our lives anymore. Go now and sin no more, he says. Don't walk in the shame. Don't walk in the regret. Walk in freedom. But yet we don't often do that, do we? We don't walk in that freedom that he's given us. Why? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's because sin is fun. Would you agree with that? Sin is fun. I've said this to you before. If it's not fun, you're not doing it right. Sin gives us instant gratification. We want what we want, and we want it right now. And even if it's contrary to God's word and God's commands, I'm going to do it anyway because I want what I want. I want to be happy. And so, God, I'm going to do this. The author of the book of Hebrews, he or she wrote it this way. He or she said that there is pleasure in sin, but that pleasure is just fleeting. It's here for a moment, but then it's gone. Here's how I put it on your outline. Sin promises satisfaction, but it comes with a price. Disobedience to God and eventual pain for me. Look, you may get away with your sin today or tomorrow. You may get away with it for a couple months or even a couple years. But as, as Moses wrote, be sure your sin will find you out. Eventually, you are going to get caught. And here's what we need to understand about sin. The long-term consequences of our sin is always greater than any short-term pleasure that we derived from it. We had a great example of that this week. If you follow the news Actor Danny Masterson, who was part of that 70s show. He's one of the characters on there. 
Many years ago, he got accused of rape, and he finally got convicted of it. Two different times, two different women that he raped. And I don't want to be crude here in, in any way, but I want you to think about what was the reward of rape? Because is there really like much pleasure other than an orgasm for you know, a little bit in, in rape? So he traded that little bit of time of pleasure for now 30 years that he got sentenced. 30 years of his life that he's going to be in jail. He's ruined his marriage. If I remember right, I, I think his daughter's 11. He's not going to see her graduate. He's not going to be able to see her get married. He's not going to be able to know his grandkids. The pleasure of sin is so, so short. But the consequence of sin is so big and it's so heavy. And so we can't take that, that short-term disobedience because, again, it's eventually going to mean pain for me and for those all around us. Now, back to the story here, this woman that was caught in adultery. Why was she committing adultery? How did she get to that place? I mean, was she just like the, the woman around town? She was just sleeping around with everybody? Was she like a homewrecker? Was, was that her M.O.? Could be. We don't know. But there's another possibility. And in fact, I, I want to sort of tell you her story. And again, I'm going to put it into more modern day terms. And again, we don't know that this is exactly what happened. But this is a hypothetical of what may have happened. So she was, you know, a godly woman. She was married, maybe had a couple kids, but the marriage had gotten a little stale, a little bit flat. Her and her husband were having some trouble communicating with one another. They had basically become roommates with one another. But then at her work one day, a new guy starts working there. And he's smart, and he's funny, and she can't help but notice he's, he's cute as well. And as the days and weeks go on, you know, they have a lot of conversations with one another about things of work. And he begins to compliment her, first of all, about things there at work, but then one day he compliments her on her new hairstyle that she had gotten. And she's quite flattered by this because her husband had noticed that she had gotten a new hairdo. But this guy noticed. And she feels a little bit guilty that she, like, enjoys having conversations with this guy so much. She actually looks forward to having conversations with this guy. But she just sort of sweeps it under the rug. Well, as the, the days and the months continue on, they have more and more conversations. They're working closer and closer with one another there at work. They're really starting to rely on one another. And then one day he says to her, hey, let's go grab lunch out. And so they go out and they... They have lunch, and then the next day, they go out and they have lunch, and the next day, they go out and they have lunch, and all of a sudden, this becomes their habit. They're just having lunch all the time, and they, they start to share more and more of their lives with each other, and one day, he says to her, you know, my marriage is, it, it's kind of struggling. 
And he shares all the details of it. And at the end of the conversation, he says, you know what? I really wish I had married somebody more like you. And again, these types of conversations about their marriages and the struggles that they're having, they continue on for days, maybe weeks, maybe even months. And then one day at work, he's walking by her in the hallway, and he brushes up against her arm. And she wonders, was this accidental? Or was there meaning and purpose behind it? And she feels like as soon as that touch came, a surge emotionally, a surge physically, she begins to to daydream. What would life be like with this guy? Maybe he could offer me a, a better life than what my husband has. And so she goes to one of her girlfriends, not a girlfriend that goes to church, but a a girlfriend that just lives out in the world, and she says, hey, you know, this is what's going on, and I kind of like this guy. And her girlfriend says to her, just follow your heart. Just do whatever it is that's going to make you happy. And the next thing you know, she's being drug in by the religious leaders before Jesus half-naked and ashamed, embarrassed. Now, is that how it happened? We don't know. But it could have happened sort of that way. One little innocent decision after another. One little thing that she thinks has no consequence at all. Just step by step by step by step until now she's standing there naked and ashamed. Again, sin promises satisfaction, but it comes with a price, disobedience to God and eventual pain for me. Now, our society doesn't want to hear this, do they? That we just can't do whatever in the world it is that we want to do. And that's because our society now has this belief that there is no such thing as absolute truth that there is no one right standard. Our society says, what may be true for you isn't true for me. And so you do what makes you happy and I'm gonna do what makes me happy, but we shouldn't look at each other and say that you should do this or I should do that. You just do you. Just do whatever it is that makes you happy. As long as you're not hurting anybody, then that's okay. But the problem with this is if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then my truth is always going to be what makes me happy. Does that make sense? If the definition of truth is defined by you, you are always going to do what makes you happy. The problem with that, though, is as followers of Jesus, God isn't concerned with our happiness. He's more concerned with our holiness. Now, again, does that mean that God doesn't want you to be happy? Of course he wants you to be happy. But what you need to understand is that happiness is found in his holiness. He is the way to be happy. Now, what's it mean to be holy? Well, the word holy simply means to be set apart for God and for his purposes. To do things God's way, not your way. And God's way never involves sin. And so we have got to learn how to be 
holy. Now, in our mind, there's a little bit of a contradiction because we think in our minds that, okay, I've got a choice here. Either I'm going to be happy or I'm going to be holy. Right? Be honest. A lot of times when we think of the word holy, we don't think of fun and excitement and happiness, do we? And so, so many people go, either I'm going to be happy or I'm going to be holy. Either I'm going to be happy or I've got to wear a full-length dress all the time. I'm going to wear khakis all the time. I'm going to have to watch only G-rated movies. I can only listen to Christian contemporary music. And then it's only like the like Michael W. Smith kind of thing, like not what Mike Sellers, like red. You, know, you don't listen to that hard contemporary Christian music. No, 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 you don't, you don't do that. You know, that, that's in our minds what we think it means to be holy. But that isn't God's definition of holiness. John 3.16 doesn't say that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall live an absolutely miserable life now. No, God is a good, good father. And like any good father, he wants only what's best for us. And he wants to give us gifts. He wants us to be happy. But again, we have got to understand that a life of happiness comes when we live a life of holiness. And if you're one of those people and your attitude is that, look, either I got to be happy or I got to be holy, then let me suggest to you that you are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. In fact, I heard Max Licato years ago. He gave an illustration. I don't remember all the, the details of it, but it's essentially this. So, so play along with me here on this one. Would a fish ever be happy living on the beach? Yes or no? You take the fish out of the water and you put it on the beach. Is the fish going to be happy? Yes or no? Type it into the chat. Yes or no? No. No. What's it going to be doing there on the beach? It's going to be flopping all around, right? It's miserable. And so you, being a kind and caring and compassionate person, come along, you see this fish that's miserable and you go, I'm going to try to make it happy. I'm going to help it. I will make it happy. Here, fish, is $1 million. Is the fish happy? No. You go, oh, I know what it, I know what'll make the fish happy. Let's throw a big party, a surprise party for the fish. We're gonna honor the fish. So you throw the party. Is the fish happy? No. You go, I, I know what we're gonna do. We're gonna get like some selfies with the fish. Post it to Instagram. And we're gonna make this thing go viral. And in fact, it does go viral. And it becomes like the, the biggest post in the history of Instagram. The fish is now famous. Is the fish happy? No. I know, I know, I know. Let's take the fish from this beach on vacation up into the mountains. Maybe it just needs a change of scenery. Is the fish happy now in the mountain? No. I know what we're going to do. Fish, I've bought you a Playfish magazine. Look at the tail on that one. This is where you find happiness. Is the fish happy now? No. Why? 
Because the fish wasn't designed to live on the beach. The fish is designed to live in the water. And what we need to understand is we were not designed for this world and the things of this world. You and I were made by God and for God for his purposes, and we're looking forward to another place that we're going to live. And so again, if you're looking for happiness here and the things of this world, you're never going to be happy. But if you seek after God, his righteousness, then you're going to be happy. Because remember, God is a holy God, a perfect God, and he created you and I to be like him. We are created in his image. And so the more like God you become, the more holy you become, the more happy you become. Now again, that seems like such a contradiction, but what you need to understand is the more you become like God, the more holy you become, what that does is it gives you some boundaries to live within. It's, it's actually the most freeing way to live. A lot of people think that if I got to live according to God's word, that's going to be very restrictive to my life. No, it's the freest way to live because once you know where the boundaries are and that I am 100% safe within those boundaries and God allows me freedom within the boundaries to go wherever I want and do whatever I want within those boundaries, oh my goodness, that's so freeing. How many of you have ever been in a situation before where you felt like you were in danger? You ever been there before where you felt like you're in danger? When you're in danger, you don't feel happy, do you? You're stressed out. It feels chaotic. And what I'm trying to get you to see here today is God has given us these, these, these boundaries, the safety that when we're within it, that's where happiness is. When we're outside of his boundaries, when we're living in sin, we're in danger consequence will come. And again, with, with that comes stress. It comes chaos in your life. So it's best to live for Jesus. It's best to live a life where you're pursuing holiness. And so I want to say to you today, walk away from whatever sin it is that's holding you back. Go and sin no more. Jesus isn't condemning you. Jesus isn't shaming you. Jesus is freeing you. So Jesus never, ever, ever said, just do whatever it is that makes you happy. He didn't say that. What he encourages us to do is to go and do what's going to make you holy. Be set apart for God. And if you'll do that, if you will pursue holiness, happiness is right behind it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to go throughout this entire series looking at things you never said, but then looking at what you actually did say, those sort of red letters, so to speak, that we find in Scripture. And so, Lord, as we sang a couple weeks ago, there is power in those red letters. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would continue to each and every day Jump into your word, read your gospel, see who it is that you were, Jesus, because as we see who you were, your character and your conduct, it's going to help to start to, to change us, and we're going to pursue you so that our character is like your character and your conduct is like our conduct, and we're just, we're becoming more and more like you, and again, we know that there is freedom within that, 
There is safety within that, and ultimately there's going to be happiness within that as well. So, Lord, each and every one of us, um, we may be trying to hide our sins from others, but like what happened in this story, Jesus, you're writing our sins down. Your spirit right now is convicting each and every person that's in this room, each and every person that's watching online. You are convicting us right now of our sin, of the things that we've thought that we've hidden from everybody else, but we have not hid them from you. And so, Lord, help us to right now confess those sins to you. And we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But not only do you give us forgiveness, Jesus, you then give us freedom. And so help us to walk in that freedom through the power of your spirit. We are no longer bound by that sin anymore. We don't have to do it anymore. It's that we we choose to do it. But help us to realize that is the bad, bad choice. Yes, that choice gives us short-term pleasure, but there are long-term consequences. So Lord, help us to turn from our sin, to repent of our sin, and turn fully to you and walk in your way. Walk the path that you would have for us because we know that that path brings safety, that path brings happiness. So Jesus, as we go on this journey with you, help us to keep our eyes on you and only go where it is that you're going, to follow you closely so that we can live a life of holiness. I pray all this in Jesus' name.